it's uh, kind of ironic that we had this uh, snowstorm the other day because I wanted to start off by telling you something that happened to me about 35 years ago. And, uh, and that's a long time ago, 35 years ago. Uh, and it happened on a wintry uh, day. I was walking through a parking lot and uh, I slipped and fell uh, on black ice. Actually, it was so long ago that they didn't call ice black or any color back in the day. Some of you might remember that. Uh, I mean, it was just called ice, you know. And so I slipped and fell. My, my foot went one way, and the full weight of my body kind of fell on that, on that ankle and foot. And the result was I tore the ligaments uh, in, in my uh, foot and leg. It was, it was excruciating. Uh, you ever hear the expression, you know, you see stars? You know, I, I really, you know, I, if there was any point in my life that I've ever come to almost blacking out because of pain, it was, it was at that moment, you know, that I tore the ligaments in, in my leg. The uh, surgeon or the, the orthopedic doctor who, who treated me said I would have been much better off had I broke my foot or, bro- or, or broken my ankle or fractured my ankle rather than having torn the ligaments in my leg. So I told, said, I'll, I'll see what I could do next time. But, you know, can you help me right now, you know? And so for the next uh, eight weeks or so, my foot was in a soft cast while it was presumably uh, being healed. So I especially am, uh, you know, uh, concerned about people walking, especially in our parking lot. And I see some of our older members this morning didn't make it out to church. And I'm kind of glad because I wouldn't want to see them fall. The older you get, the, the more risk is involved. So listen, I was like 30 years old. When, when, when that happened to me. And so it could happen to you at any age. So please be careful on your way uh, out of the uh, church today and on, on your way home. But I tell you, I've, I've learned how to walk on ice very carefully, very slowly, very gingerly, you know, kind of move like that, you know. In fact, I, I'm so cautious with walking on ice that, that even now, you know, I, I've given up even lemon ice, because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, slip and fall again. No, 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 no. Seriously, you, you never forget something like that. See, the thing is, I, me- I, me- I mentioned this experience of my fall on the ice and the injury that took place. And even though it happened such a long time ago, I mean, it was a fall that ex- I experienced in the past, right? What happens is every once in a while, and it's almost unexplainable, but, but every once in a while, I get this this radiating pain in that specific area of my, of my foot. And maybe some of you relate to that. Maybe you've had like a broken bone and maybe sometimes when the weather was certain, a certain way, there's that. Listen, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's scar tissue, if it's, if it's uh, calcium deposits that are built up, if it's, if it's arthritis. I don't know, you know, what the, I know that I have, I have not re-injured myself in that area, but but every, every once in a while, maybe sometimes it comes for like a whole day and sometimes it won't come for like six, six weeks or, 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 or even, you know, just a few times a year. But then there's that, there's that present pain. Now, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's hard for you to see where I'm going in this, in this point of bringing up this illustration. And, and, and that is that the whole human family, because of a fall, is experiencing a present pain, even though it happened a really, really long time ago. There is a present pain associated with the previous fall. And that, that, that fall uh, is, is the result of, 
the human race falling into sin. So I want to talk to you this morning, you know, uh, in relationship to, to this pain that we experience. Now, now even though, listen, even though you may be in Christ this morning, there is healing for you in Jesus from the fall. You know, uh, the prophet Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed. There is, there is healing from the consequences and the effects of, of, of the fall of Adam. Uh, but I want you to know that just like this, this reoccurring pain, so likewise, the, the, there is this reoccurring pain associated with the sinful nature and with the fall and with our experience just by being in this world. Believers, I, I like to say it this way, believers are, are, are not sinners who struggle with loving God, but believers are lovers of God who sometimes struggle with sin. Let me say it again, it's, it's worth repeating. Believers are, are not sinners who struggle with loving God. We, we've passed that point. But rather we are lovers of God who sometimes struggle with sin. And so we're not yet made perfect. If you're in Christ, you, you know that Jesus has experientially set you free from the power of sin. You are no longer under the dominion of sin. You are living under grace. You're not living under law or under the power of sin. Jesus has set you free from that. But here's the thing. While we're in process, and, and we are all in process, if you're in Christ, we're even being delivered from the pleasure of sin. Sin is no longer what it once was for us. There, there's no longer that great delight in sin. It's one of the evidences that we belong to Jesus is that we've changed, our priorities have changed, our desires have changed as our character is being changed. But here's the thing is that, that we've not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. As long as we're in this body, as long as we're in this present age, we will struggle with this thing called sin. We, we will struggle with temptation. We will struggle with the sinful nature. That's just the way that it is. And as a result of that, there will be, just as my illustration, a recurrence of pain. So there's an association of a recurrence of pain, even for those of us in Christ. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to tell you that Jesus offers you healing. He offers that if you would come to him, you would find rest for your soul. And I tell you what, it comes with a money-back guarantee. Well, maybe not money back, but it does come with a guarantee, a promise of eternal life to those who will put their trust in him. And although Jesus has broken the power of sin over our lives, yet we still have to deal with sin because we're in this world. And, and, and this is the present age in which we live in. Paul the Apostle, I love how he graphically describes this struggle that I'm talking about this morning and this reoccurrence of the pain associated with it beautifully here in, in Romans, the seventh chapter. And it leads up to maybe what is one of the most unfortunate breaks in the chapters. He, he leads up to maybe one of the greatest statements of all in the New Testament. In, Ro, in Romans 8, verse 1, it says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not in the future, never will there be condemnation for any man or woman that, that finds themselves in Christ Jesus. That is, they become followers of Jesus. No condemnation. 
but there's a struggle. And Paul expresses that struggle, that when he desires to do good, evil is present with him. And, and, and the desire to do good, you know, and so let's just look at those verses from uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 21, and we'll, and we'll see what, he, what, what Paul is talking about here. He says, I find therefore a law, and I put in parentheses the word principle, because Paul is not talking about a legislative law. He's talking about a principle like the laws of gravity or like the laws of physics or like the laws of aviation. They, they, are, they are unwritten laws, but they're principles. So what Paul says is this, I find therefore a principle always desirous of doing good. We, we want to do good. We, there's a desire to be pleasing to God, to, to walk uh, in this new creation that God has, has provided for us, created in righteousness and, and in true holiness. That's the desire that God has placed within our spirit. Yet evil, he says, is present. Evil is always present. Evil is oh, We're living in the, the sphere, the, the realm of, of evil. For I rejoice in the law of God according to the inward man, that is, in my inner spirit. But I also see a different kind of principle in my members that is in my physical body, waging war against the law of my mind, the principle that's in my mind, making me a prisoner of war to the law of the sinful nature. Well, I mean, what a, what a graphic picture of, of being imprisoned by the sinful nature, having this, this sinful nature that has been crucified with Christ as a matter of faith, for if we reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin, then we can find ourselves alive unto God. But notice what Paul says there. It's the cry of his heart. It's one of the evidences that you are a child of God. When there is this hunger, this, this yearning desire to be free from the very presence of sin, this is what he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Is there any hope for us? Is there, in this cry of, of desire for freedom, is there any hope? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What Paul's saying. Paul is feeling the pain and the struggle caused by the fall. Even though he's been saved by the power of the cross and saved by the blood of Jesus, he's crying out for a deliverance from this sinful nature. Paul's expressing a longing from the menacing harassment that comes from still being in this world that is filled with sin. I, I love what, the first time I read this, it was from Adam Clark in his commentary on Romans 7.21. This is the allegory that, that Paul, we just read about. He says, he says this, there seems to be here an illusion to an ancient custom of certain tyrants who bound a dead body to a living man and obligated him to carry it about until the contagion from the putrid corpse took away his life. What a vivid picture of what it's like to carry around with us that old sinful nature. It's like being chained hand to hand, face to face, front to back, to a, to a corpse as a living prisoner. And so, and so the, the question is, is there any hope for us? And, and Paul answers that hope, yes, 
Thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ. Jesus alone can break the curse of this sinful nature. And what Paul is saying is that as long as we live in this present age, as long as we live in these corruptible bodies, we will experience this struggle, this wrestling, this having to overcome temptation. We, we find ourselves to be the, the hatred of the tempter. The, the tempter seeks to, to, to cause us to fall. But what is counteracting that is that we're also the apple of God's eye. We're also his beloved children. So what Paul is saying is this, is that we never grow out of our dependency upon Christ. We, we, we never come to the point where we're so mature that we no longer need grace or we no longer need Jesus to keep us from falling. We will always be dependent upon him to save us into the uttermost. And because we're vulnerable to temptation, because we're in this world, because we're vulnerable to temptation, we are dependent upon Jesus moment by moment, hour by hour, upon the Holy Spirit to help us overcome the world flesh and the devil. I, I love the way Paul puts it in, in giving us hope. He says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, here is a trustworthy saying and deserving of all full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Mission number one for Jesus to come into this world, the reason why he was born of a virgin was so that he would save sinners. His mission is to seek and to save sinners, the lost. That's us. And I, I have to make note of what Paul says here, what it, maybe what he doesn't say here is he doesn't use the past tense by saying of whom I was the worst or of whom I was the foremost. He says, of whom I am the worst. That's amazing. You see, I believe the way that it works is like this, that the closer we come to Jesus, the, the, the more mature we are in him and the more we grow in him, the greater the light of Christ reflects or, or displays the flaws and the imperfections that are still in us. And even, in, even the Apostle Paul could say, oh, wretched man that I am. With all the revelation that he had, with all of the accomplishments, with all of the miracles that he worked, yet Paul could still say that he was the worst of sinners. I, I love Eugene Peterson's the message, which is, a, which is a paraphrased translation. Let, let me read that same verse plus one more to add to our understanding of what Paul is saying here. He says, here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. That's the purpose of this message this morning, that this truth can be taken to heart and that you can depend upon it, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one, Someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. Why are any of us in a relationship with Christ, why are any of us headed toward eternal life, headed toward heaven, is because of the sheer mercy of God. Not one of us deserves the favor of God. Someone, he says, who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. I love that last line. 
if you're here this morning and you are on the edge of trusting Jesus forever, may the Holy Spirit gently nudge you into the, over the edge and into the arms of a, an amazing Savior whose love is unconditional and whose love never ends. Which leads us to the, to the point of this message this morning, the, the name that we must add to this list of the name that is above every name is a name that was ascribed to Jesus by his enemies. They, they meant it as a slur. They meant it as a judgmental criticism against Jesus of Nazareth. And so, and so, and so that has become for us the battle cry, really, when we're in the midst of temptation, when, 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 even, when even when we have fallen wounded by the fact that there is sometimes failure in our life as followers of Christ, and we sometimes stumble and fall, in many areas we do offend, and yet it becomes the banner over us, the flag over us that rallies us to be able to to look unto the one who, who is able to save unto the uttermost. And that is this name found in Matthew eleven nineteen. Jesus, friend of sinners. Jesus, friend of sinners. I believe it was uh, Christmas Eve that Doug spoke about Jesus, his name meaning he shall save his people from his sins, but to take the name Jesus and to add it to the identification of friend of Sinners, what, what, what priceless, what, what, what a precious truth that is, that Jesus is the friend of sinners. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about friends and, and a friend. For instance, in Proverbs 18, 24, it says, a friend is one who sticks, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There, there is a friend who is so near, not because he has to be because he's a relative, but because he wants to be because of his unending love because a friend loves at all times. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times. And what we discover, and I believe that, that these verses were inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us what kind of friend Jesus is because, listen, all, all scripture was inspired by the Spirit of God to point to, to reveal, to unfold the magnificence of Jesus. But I suppose it's really inconceivable that God would want to be friends with me and want to be friends with you, want to be friends with people like us. It's, incon it's inconceivable, but it's true that God wants to become and he has befriended us so that we might enter into a friendship relationship with him. Abraham or Abram back in the day, who was a moon worshiper in the land of the era of the Chaldees, the moon city is called the friend of God. I mean, that is remarkable that, that this moon worshiper should become so transformed that he's given the title of friend of God. The Lord rebuked uh, Miriam and Aaron and said, when I speak to prophets, I speak to them in dreams and in visions, not so with Moses. For when I speak to Moses, I speak to him as if it were, and I gotta put that phrase in there, as if it were, as close to possible, a man speaks to a friend face to face. Moses became the friend of God and the remarkable transformation that took place in his life. 
Think about, think about the, the family line through which Jesus came. Now, and I'll tell you what, if you had ancestors like this, if you, you know, went on that website, what is it, ancestry.com, to look up your family tree, and you found, you found a bunch of relatives like this, I don't think you'd be wanting anybody to know about it. But look at, look, look at some of the people that are in the line of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab. Rahab, the Bible says, the harlot. She's, she's, she's given that name even though there was a transformation that took place in her life. She's still known as, oh yeah, Rahab, the harlot. Oh yeah, I, Rahab. Tamar. Tamar deceived and seduced her own father-in-law and played the part of a, a, a prostitute. And then, of course, there's David. David, whose public sin of adultery was only complicated by his desire to cover up that sin by the conspiracy of killing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And, and, and Uriah's mentioned as well as in the genealogy of Christ. Then there's Manasseh. Manasseh took his infant son, his wife just gave birth to, and, and placed his infant son on a metal idol that had been heated to a glowing burn, and he placed the living child in the fire as an act of worship. This, these are, this is the family into which Jesus was born. And the Bible says he is not ashamed to call us family. I mean, if that's not amazing, I don't know what is. While never once compromising with sin or making light of the devastating consequences of sin, yet Jesus never looked at a sinner with disgust or disdain. He never looked at people as though they were worthy to be annihilated or worthy, worthy to be just blotted out. He never, he never felt repulsion or contempt for sinful people, but always believed that sinners were suffering and in need of a miracle of healing grace to transform their lives. To the woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus refused to condemn her. He refused to accuse her. First of all, he, he wouldn't have been a witness to what had taken place, so he, he could not you know, accuse her, but he refused to condemn her. But instead, he empowered her to go and sin no more. To the man that was by the pool of Bethesda, who Jesus healed with one word out of his, out of his lips, just, 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 just pick up your bed and, and walk. And, and, and with that gave the warning Turn away from your life of sin so that something worse won't happen to you. We spoke about the woman who was, who was the Samaritan woman, whose reputation was scandalous. To her, Jesus gave himself the gift of eternal life. He gave her something way better than water. He gave her living water. To the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, he not only invited himself to have supper with Zacchaeus, but he became the friend of Zacchaeus to the point where a transformation took place, inspired by the presence of Jesus to the point where Zacchaeus was another man. 
The half of all I give, I have, I give to the poor. And if I've stolen anything, if I've taken anything by wrongdoing, I restore it fourfold. Truly, Jesus said, salvation is coming. You see, you see, in every example that I've mentioned, and I can mention others as well, what Jesus does as the friend of sinners is he brings about transformation. He changes us from what we once were into what we are and what we are becoming. And, and although we are not yet what we will be, we're not what we once were. He that has begun a good work in you will bring that work to completion. I, I love the fact that the Bible says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus he, start, he starts a work in our hearts the moment that we begin to believe and to trust in him. Yet Jesus had convicting words for self-righteous, religious, Pharisees, and scribes, yet his words were always, always truth and grace. Truth and grace. You know what I love about Jesus? He never, he never played the blame card. He, he never pointed a finger uh, with a, with, with, with an accusation in, in, in a sense of, 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 of condemning someone. And, you know, we're all too familiar with, we, we all know what, what, the, what blame is, is like. It's part of the anatomy of the fall. We, we, you know, little children immediately learn how to blame and to, and to, and to pass blame rather than saying it was my fault. No, our, our, our default Mantra is, it's not my fault. Adam blamed his wife. She blamed the serpent. But maybe the worst blame of all was Adam's putting blame at the feet of the creator himself by, by insinuating and, and, and impl implying that it was God's fault because the woman you gave me, she made me to eat. In other words, in other words, you made her with these faults, and therefore, because she was deceived and, and, and she tempted me, it, it really ultimately is your, that, that is the worst. It is so unattractive to, to, to pass blame. It is, it is so the epitome of selfishness. And Jesus is just the opposite. Jesus is just the opposite because he not only does not pass blame, but he has taken the blame that we deserve upon himself. He's taking the guilt, he's taking the shame, he's taking the curse that we deserved so that we might become restored and we might become healed by his substitution. I love the story of the prostitute in Luke chapter seven. You probably are familiar with the story. Jesus is, is, is reclining at the supper you know, he's been invited by a Pharisee by the name of Simon to come to his house. But he's been shown no real hospitality. And, 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 and in the open courtyard, this is the way that, that people would kind of come and listen to a rabbi or, or listen to some famous person who, who, was, who was, you know, invited as a guest. And, and, and the, the first awareness that Jesus would have that something was going on was the warm tears that he felt on his feet because, because he would be propped up on some pillows, his, his, his left arm probably resting on the table while his, his right arm was free to uh, in, engage in, in the supper. And there's the woman, and she's, and she's weeping over his feet. And then she lets down her hair, and she begins to dry 
his feet with her hair. And she's, the, the next thing that he must have felt was, was the warm breath of her kisses as she profusely, repeatedly kissing his feet, which was a sign of great respect. Read Psalm chapter two. Sign of great respect as she was kissing his feet. And Simon, of course, you know, is objecting this in his heart. He's saying if he was really a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this was. And, and, and yet, yet Jesus comes away in this story, and, and, and he says that this woman who's, who's sinned greatly loves much because she's been forgiven much. While Simon has no value in Jesus whatsoever, he doesn't show him any customary respect, but this woman... She, she takes her most costly possession, her perfume, which she would have used in her previous profession, but, but now that she's experienced this transformation, she don't need it anymore. So she pours out the contents of that perfume on the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says to her, and I, lo- I love what he says to her, he says, woman, your faith, not your works, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has set you free. Or same word, Greek word. And he sends her away. During World War I, uh, there's an expression. You ever hear the expression, uh, no man's land? The expression no man's land came about during World War I when they had fighting between trenches. The, the, the enemy line, they, they, they would dig a trench and you would dig your trench there. And, and what was in between was called no man's land. And a soldier had a friend who he saw was wounded, who fell with a mortal wound in this place called no man's land. And so he asked his commanding officer, can I go and retrieve my friend? Can I go and rescue my friend? And the commanding officer said, no, there's no way that I'm gonna let you go. I'm not gonna lose two good men. Nobody can survive out there. But he disobeyed his commanding officer and he went anyway. And somehow when he got to him, he was able to lift him to his shoulders and he was able to carry him back to this trench. But in the process, he too was mortally wounded. And the commanding officer was angry and said, I told you not to go. Now I've lost two good men. It wasn't worth it. And, and, and dying, he said this. He said, he, said, he said, sir, it was worth it. Because when I got to him, he said, Jim, I knew you would come for me. We had no expectation that anyone would come for us. There was nothing in us that made him come for us. We were yet the enemies of Christ while he died for us. Not his friend, but he is a friend who loves at all times and he is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And he's come to seek and to save the lost. There's no brokenness he cannot heal. There is no one so dirty that he cannot forgive. There is no one so broken that he cannot restore. Jesus is able to save into the uttermost because he's a glorious and a wonderful 
friend, to sinners. Think about the man Christ Jesus. He's our BFF. He, he truly is our best forever friend. He, the one who came for us is our, sincerely, he is the very best friend that we could possibly have. In the film, uh, Amazing Grace, it's a story uh, about William Wilberforce who endeavored to stop the uh, British transatlantic uh, slave trade in the 19th century. Uh, he was, of course, an Englishman. And William makes a visit to his friend and pastor, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And he pleads with John, who had been a former slave trader before his conversion. He had been a captain on a ship. And he pleaded with him, come and, and testify before, before parliament the things that you've seen and heard. And, 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 and John Newton said, I cannot, I cannot. It is just too painful. There are too many, too many ghosts that trouble me. And, and, and later toward the, uh, the story, almost toward the end of the story, when it was coming obvious that, that they were going to win the, their battle in the abolition of, of slavery. He makes another visit to John. This time now, John Newton is now almost completely blind. And he discovers that John has written a record of, of, of his memory of, of ports and, and records and, and ships and, and, and detail. he's detailed it all. And he says this, he says, as much as I could remember, I've, I've recorded, use it now, use it now to, to win this battle against slavery. And, and, and John Newton says this, he says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great savior. What I want to leave with you this morning is, 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 is the knowledge that not only is Jesus the friend of sinners, there are a lot of people who are friends of others who are sinners. What, what makes Jesus so infinitely valuable is that the one who is the friend of sinners is a great savior. He can do something about our sin. He can not only forgive us, he can restore us and he can renew us by clothing us with his very own righteousness. All of his achievements, all of his accomplishments. Free of charge are given to us when we put our trust and our confidence in him. If you're here this morning and you're on the edge, I hope, I hope the Holy Spirit nudges you off the edge and into the arms of Jesus. If you're a believer this morning, let this be the battle cry. When you find yourself this week struggling with, with, with some Listen, it doesn't matter how old you are in Christ. It doesn't matter how many victories you've had in the past. Sometimes, sometimes the reoccurrence of the pain of the past comes up. I mean, th there are things in all of our lives when, when the enemy knows how to push our buttons to remind us of the, some of the things that we've done that we regret. 
let this be the battle cry. Let it, let it be the banner that flies over your battle that Jesus Christ is a great savior because he's the, the greatest friend you'll ever have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the revelation of the name of Jesus, though it was given to him by enemies, as those that sought to malign the character of Jesus, we now glory in the title, Friend of Sinners, because that's exactly what we need. Moment by moment, Day by day, year by year, no matter what, we, we, we are looking to the one who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. But Jesus, we, we, we wanna just express our appreciation to you that we're your workmanship. We, we are those that you've begun a good work in and because you've begun a good work in us, you will complete that work and you you make all things beautiful. This morning I was speaking to someone right before the service and we were talking about someone that we're praying for, for salvation. And they said to me, he makes all things beautiful in his time. And that is, that is absolutely true. Place your heart, your life, your loved ones in the hands of Jesus and he will make you beautiful as well. Let's all stand together.